Hey, everybody. You're tuning into this week's episode of the Muzzle Blast Podcast. My name is Jordan Walsh. I'm a Canadian boy hosting The Rifleman on Sportsman's Channel in the United States as well as Sportsman's Channel up in Canada. And I'm proud to be working with the National Muzzle Loading Rifle Association this year and bringing all of you content from around the world with muzzle loaders. Ethan, thanks so much for having me on. How's it going today, my friend? It's going great. It's so good to have you on. We we first met out the Shot Show this spring, and I think, um, at least for me, that was one of the last times I was able to get out of the house and out of the state, even. So <laughs> it's it's really nice to connect with you here on the podcast and, and talk about muzzleloading. No, and I just can't thank you enough for uh, for having me on here. It's an honor to be here. And like you said, yeah, I'm pretty sure Shot Show was uh, the last time I was out of the house too, which. Unfortunately, you know, we were going to go over to Africa and, and do Cape Buffalo hunt and, and a lion hunt all with muzzleloader. Uh, you know, our brand new best of the West muzzleloaders um, with uh, with the old iron sights uh, or with our Huskamaw scopes. But uh, we didn't get to go there. You know, yeah. this thing called COVID happened and it threw a wrench into everybody's life. And hey, we're just up here trying to make the best of it. Yeah. Well, and are things going pretty okay up there in Canada? Or are you guys seeing some some pretty bad outbreaks now like we're seeing down here? You know what? I mean, we have a tenth of the population, you guys. That's no secret. So we're always going to have less cases. That's just, you know, a fact. But we are noticing a little bit of an outbreak. Um, where I'm based here in Edmonton, Alberta, I actually checked yesterday, which in the beginning, I don't know, I'm sure everybody followed it to a T and I was guilty of that as well. And now I try to stay away from it, honestly, but I did check yesterday and we had 135 confirmed cases uh, here in the city of Edmonton, which is about a million people. So you look at it, it's really not that bad. Mm-hmm. However, compared to what we had, you know, even a month ago, uh, it's, it's about, about triple. So yeah, we're having an outbreak um, just like you guys just you know, less people. So less cases. Well, we're happy that you're staying inside and you can come on the show and talk with us a little bit. I'd like to dive in because I'll be honest, I, I don't watch a lot of TV and, you know, I didn't Me really know about what you were doing until we, we met up there at the SHOT Show. So for some yeah. of our guests that might be in the same boat as me, how did you get started in all of this? I mean, you're, you're rather young, aren't you? I am just turned 26 a few months ago. Um, I've been doing this now for, uh, for four years, been fortunate enough to, uh, work in the hunting industry and it's kind of a long story. Like I could probably fill the whole hour podcast with how I got started in it. But, uh, the cold notes really is just determination. The squeaky wheel gets the grease. Um, <laughs> I was a hockey player as you know, most Canadian boys are, and I got too many concussions, so I couldn't play anymore, which kind of threw me for a loop when I was 18. And, and you know, life just had different plans than I did. So I tried to make the best of it. And I ended up working in the media side of hockey. And by the time I was 20, I was actually working in uh, in professional hockey down in the United States, you know, where you guys are at. Yeah. And that was great. But it kind of took the fun out of the game for me. It turned it into a job. And I didn't like that. So 21, I took a step back and I said, hey, my passions in life, number one, hockey, number two, hunting. I made a living off one. Maybe I can make a living off of number two. And I picked up the phone and I phoned our network up there at the time was wild TV. And I phoned them every day for 11 days straight until their president, uh, I guess program director at the time, Helgi Amundsen, who's also shot one of the biggest whitetails ever shot in the world. Um, Anybody listening, you should totally Google the Helgi Amundsen buck, 287 inch non-typical whitetail. And I bugged him, badgered him until he gave me an interview on Thursday and the following Monday, he offered me a job doing sales. Wow. Then I turned that basically into, Hey, I want to be on TV. I want to do a hunting show. I'm the guy. Let me do it. And I ran with it and got sponsors and built relationships and I got a show. And now here we are. Wow. Number five, different show, different network. Um, 
but we're growing, you know, yeah. uh, getting picked up in the United States here in 2020 on Sportsman's Channel was, uh, was fantastic. Uh, big career move for me, very happy. And that also resulted in us moving over to Sportsman's Channel in Canada. And, you know, like I said, very, uh, very blessed and, and very happy to, uh, to do what I do. And you know what? It's fun, but it is hard work, believe it or not. As you know, I mean, hey, you, you work in the hunting industry too, and everybody probably tells you you have a dream job, and, and you do. But uh, hey, we work our tail off. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. I'd, I'd, I'd rather spend a lot more time out hunting <laughs> than, than the reporting <laughs> side of it, but that's just how it is. No, for sure, for sure. And I mean, hey, this year I'm the same way. We haven't, uh, we've had to get creative. I mean, COVID, like I said, it kind of threw a wrench into us. You know, we're supposed to go to Africa, New Zealand, a bunch of fun places that we go every year. But, uh, obviously that didn't happen and, you know, we've had to get creative. We did, uh, we did a wild hog hunt, which, you know, I, I never would have done before, but we did it this year. Um, black bear hunt, which we do every year, but had to do, you know, a lot more, a lot more work and, and really make that episode one of our, one of our solid episodes. You know, usually it's kind of one of those average ones, just a bear hunt, but, uh, you know, this year we, we really don't know what we're going to get to do. So we have to make every episode like it's our last one, to be yeah. honest. So what's the... It's kind of off topic, but a little, I mean, it's not, it's not on the outline, but uh, what does hunting look like up in Canada? I mean, for you, you grew up playing hockey. Did you also grow up hunting when seasons came in? Did you kind of put down the hockey stick and pick up a rifle and get out into the woods? Or is that something you were drawn to later? Absolutely. No, you know what? You hit the nail on the head, my friend. Um, I always, you know, that was my life, hockey and hunting. And when November rolled around, I, I put down the stick. I took some time away from the rink and pick up the rifle exactly and head it out and i think you know most people can probably relate to this not everyone and you know i think it's fantastic uh, you see nowadays maybe one of the maybe one of the benefits or pluses of social media and and you know 2020 let's call it is all these young people they're actually kind of viewing hunting as a fun enjoyable activity you know, not everyone for for sure but more people i think than uh, in years past are really looking at hunting as, as, as an enjoyable thing as they should. And I think it's fantastic. So not everyone as much, you know, and I'm only 26, but even for me, when I was younger, um, if you, you know, if your grandpa didn't hunt, if your dad didn't hunt, you didn't hunt, but not everyone as much more is like that. Um, you know, you're seeing a lot of new people get into hunting, at least up here. And I yeah. think you guys are probably the same down South, which is fantastic. But you know, for the most part, that older generation, um, you know, your dad hunted, your grandfather hunted, your great grandfather hunted. And I was no different. I grew up in a family that hunted. And, uh, yeah, when November rolled around, it was, it was time to get out in the field and, uh, and get serious. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's, we're seeing that trend go on a lot right now. I mean, especially in the muzzleloading community, a lot of people think that it's all a bunch yeah. of old guys sitting out sweating, you know, shooting single shots all the time, but there's a lot of younger people that are really getting into kind of the, I mean, outdoors and hunting in general, especially now, because you can go out and do it by yourself or with a couple people. Um, right. But I think muzzleloading is seeing a big resurgence. And we, I mean, we if you're listening to the show and you've, you've heard episodes before, I talk about that a lot, but we really are. And even, even during this, a lot of people have spent their time building kits, building new rifles, getting gear around because they know that no matter what, they're going to be able to go out in the woods this fall in a blind or, or walking around, you know, and hunt. That's kind of a, something, a constant that we're all focusing on right now. Agree. And hey, let's uh, let's be honest and view both sides of that coin. A, it's great for the hunting industry. Mm -hmm. The more people out there, the merrier. But B, you know, for guys like you or I, or you know, even my grandpa or my dad, who are double my age and then some, 
they're probably not so excited. You know, us guys that work in the hunting industry, we're like, yeah, the more the merrier. Let's let's get it rolling. However, this fall, I'm a little worried about. I'm not going to lie, Ethan. It's uh, I think everyone and their dog is going to be out there, and you know, as great as it is, uh, it might make it a little more difficult for us guys that have been hunting, you know, for years and years and years with all these newcomers. Which again, I want to reiterate, that's fantastic, but everyone is going to be out there yeah. and it's going to, I think it's going to really create some, uh, some unique and, and unique headaches. Let's just call it with, uh, with a whole bunch of people roaming around or they're just going to fall into our hunting spots, honestly. Yeah. And, well, you know that's, that's, that's going to be par for the course for 2020, I think at this rate. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, too funny. Too funny. So you've, I mean, this year was different. You, you couldn't go to Africa, New Zealand, like you were talking about, but you've gone around the world hunting previously in previous seasons. That's right. Yep. So what are some of your favorite locations and places to hunt? I mean, me, a Midwestern boy, I mean, there's just, there's pretty much turkey and whitetail. That's all we've got available around me. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm biased and I got to be honest, some of the best hunting on the planet is up here in Canada. And we're very, very fortunate um, to have the game that we have. But to highlight, you know, traveling around the world and whatnot, um, I love traveling. I love traveling as much as the next guy. And, and you know, I wouldn't trade it for the world. This year, it, like everyone, it's killing me that I can't go, you know, those amazing places. But I think there's no really right or wrong answer as to which one is my favorite. They're so different. You know, you go to New Zealand and you do a stag hunt. You know, I've done free range stag. I've done a state stag. I've done free range tar. And I'll say the tar was never on my list. I never really cared to shoot a tar, honestly. But, you know, my guide over there he calls me last year. He says, hey, Jordan, mate, why don't you come over here and shoot a tar? Uh, bring somebody to shoot a stag. And, you know, we'll figure out the cost later. I'm like, well, don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> so I go over there and you know what? That hunt, like I said, never on my list, never cared to do it. And I got to say that hunt probably to date is my favorite hunt that I've ever done. Really? It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. The mountains over there are just like the Rockies here uh, in North America. They're a little less, uh, they're a little lower, but they're more steep. So the, you know, the elevation and, and the hike up is equally as hard as it would be um, if you were to go to, you know, Denver or Calgary and, and do a hike um, or a sheep hunt for that matter. But the nice added luxury is as long as you want to, I mean, you could stay on the mountain, but if you want to, you can come down and head back to the five-star lodge every single night. And we did that mostly. Um, you know, one night we did stay, stay on the mountain. And then the next morning, we, you know, we were fortunate enough to, uh, to get our tar, great, great tar. Um, but I got to say, like, for me, that was actually my first mountain hunt. Uh, you can believe it or not. <laughs> I'm addicted to it now. I want to go on more and more, but, uh, it was never on my list and it turned out totally fantastic. If anyone wants to experience a very unique, very challenging, but incredibly rewarding hunt, the New Zealand bull tar is the way to go. And then I'm biased to, I love Africa. I just love Africa. But again, it's an entirely different experience. Um, you know, you're going over there and everything's, you know, if you're going to South Africa, everything's behind a fence for the most part, you know, 99.9% of everything is behind a fence. You know, when I say behind a fence, um, it's not in a pen. It's right. on, you know, 34,000 or 44,000 uh, acres. And it's challenging. Uh, I shot a lion last year. And you know what? That hunt was fantastic. We tracked it. We did it in the Kalahari Desert, um, 34,000 acres. And we tracked that thing 22 kilometers in plus 38. I still, this was, I kid you not, this was 14 months ago. I still have a sunburn 
Uh, and I should have wear sunscreen, my, my fault, but I still have a sunburn on my neck uh, from it. And you know what? Incredibly rewarding, incredibly great hunt. Africa, you know, it's a five-star lodge. You, you're getting treated like a, like a celebrity over there all the time. doesn't matter who you are. If you're there, all those guys. And I mean, I, I go with Horns Africa Safaris and I encourage you. A, if you want to book a hunt, reach out. Uh, I also run a hunt booking agency, but, uh, or reach out to Horns Africa Safaris. They're top-notch, but I'll be honest, most of the operations over there are. Mm-hmm. And if you want the experience of a lifetime and to be treated, you know, like a celebrity through and through, as well as, you know, go over and literally harvest as many animals as you want, you know, one, 10, 20, 30, um, seriously, Africa is the place for you. That's neat. I mean, there's a, there's a large history of hunting in Africa and it's, it's neat to hear that they're keeping that going, but also kind of holding it to the standards of modern conservationists, you know, keeping track of the, I mean, like you say, they're fenced in, but it's not like, you know, it's not a cage. I mean, you're talking about 34,000 acres, I mean, and tracking it for 22 kilometers. I mean, that's the, the fence is kind of moot at that point, isn't it? Totally. You know, you hit the nail on the head and some people are, you know, love it. Some people hate it. And, you know, most people are probably somewhere in the middle like myself, but when you actually get over there and you realize, okay, we hunted for seven days, we shot, you know, between the group of three of us, I think we shot 32 animals and we didn't see a fence once. Hmm. Um, you know, you stay in the 34,000 acres, you sleep there, you live there. It, you know, it's your home for, for 10 days and you travel wherever you need to go to get your animal. And I kid you not, you don't, ever see a fence and you touched on it too they do an amazing job of of conservation over there and you know i'll pick on the lion just because i'm familiar with it incredibly because you know before i went and shot a lion i'll be honest i want to do the african big five uh, but i needed to do a lot of research um, and not convince myself like i'll be the first guy to jump out and shoot a lion but i needed to know what was going on Mm -hmm. so i think one of the common you know misbeliefs is that that all that money, you know, shooting a lion. And I mean, because of COVID, it's, it's going to be a lot cheaper next year. But, you know, let's say shoot a lion. Well, and because of Cecil and the dentist, that definitely dropped the pricing too. Yeah. But let's say, let's say it's 20 grand US to go and shoot a, you know, great lion, um, which you could book that hunt all day long for that price. And, you know, a lot of that money actually goes towards the conservation of the animals. I know that's an old cliche. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, we've heard that before. But no, seriously. Um, part of it totally goes in the outfitter's pocket as it should. I mean, he's got to feed his family. He's got to feed himself and that's his job. However, they're employing, you know, 12, 20, 30 people that without those dollars wouldn't have a job. You know, they would just be who knows where they wouldn't even have a job. And furthermore, you know, you take about 20%, I would say let's have that 20,000. So call it $4,000. And that goes into the a purchasing of the lion and B, feeding of the other lines. These lines come from farms. It is what it is. Um, you know, they're, they're farmed until they're about eight or nine years old. And then they're released. And when they hit 10, they get harvested. Hmm. And that financial injection is what keeps it going. Think of it this way. If an American or a Canadian farmer didn't get paid to grow crops or to raise cattle, they wouldn't do them. As yeah. soon as you deem an animal as valueless, there's no need to invest in them there's no need to uh you know grow them there's no need to have them so if we don't spend these dollars and go and shoot lions and elephants and cape well cape buffaloes a lot but you know lions elephants rhinos if nobody's going harvesting those animals there's no value to them why would a farmer 
raise a cow and for no, for no profit. Mm-hmm. They just wouldn't. And lions are no different. Yeah. It's just, be, and it's becoming harder and harder to sustain those areas naturally, you know, just as populations grow and, you know, you get more and more of that wild area becomes developed, even in Africa, I, I imagine it just, it, it becomes kind of a difficult process and you have to look at keeping it going however you can. Absolutely. Hmm. And, you know, another thing is the poaching over there, even in South Africa and South Africa is pretty Westernized. Like, you know, you land in Johannesburg, which believe it or not is actually per capita, the murder capital of the world. So you land there. Yeah. And you land there and you're like, Oh my gosh, where am I going? And literally, you know, we went to a mall there. We went to a couple of hunting stores there. You would have thought you were, you know, at the mall of America in Minnesota. It is no different Hmm. than what we have here, but you know, like in Minneapolis, if you go looking for trouble, you'll find it. And Africa's just the same way. Um, So, you know, you get out into some of those, and a touch on the modernization parts. Once you get out of those cities, it's not very modernized at all. Um, they're, you know, they live in huts. They live in, you know, little shelters that are 300 square feet, and four people will live in there. But what I will say is the cell phone service is fantastic. Like way better cell service than you're going to have down in Arkansas or some of those, you know, southern United States. Um, fantastic cell service. You'd be in the middle of nowhere, and you have full bar service. Huh. The reason is. It's because, yeah, each one of those little towns with those huts and those people, you know, there might be 100,000 of those huts and four people living there. Well, that's half a million people. Mm-hmm. So all those phone companies over there like Vodafone and whatnot will just throw up a tower uh, to service, you know, two or three of those little spots. So it's fantastic. Oh, and hey, every one of those little huts, the four people that live in there, each have an iPhone. They each have an iPad and I guarantee you there's a 52-inch plasma screen TV in every single one of those houses. <laughs> That's crazy. Right? It blew my mind. But to come back to it, um, yeah, I mean, the it, it is getting harder. And, you know, I wanted to touch on this year, uh, the poaching, even in South Africa. It's through the roof. There's no hunters over there. We can't get there. Right. So there's no outfitters out there. So the poachers are having a heyday. No one's patrolling. No one's seeing them. No one's doing anything. And the poaching in South Africa right now is something that I truly don't think is uh, reported on enough. You know, CNN should really run a news story on that. Give Trump a break for a day and, and run a news story on that because <laughs> it is insane the amount of poaching going on over there because there's no one else out there. Yeah. So it's so unfortunate. But uh, it just really goes to show how important hunting is in Africa. Yeah. Well, thanks for that insight. Like I said, I I mean, the chances of me getting to Africa just in general are are slim to none. (laughs) So it's neat to hear about it. So what made you choose the muzzleloader for this season? In the previous seasons, you've used kind of a variety of rifles. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I've always been, uh, I've always worked with Huskamaw Lawn Range Optics. And our parent company is Best of the West Rifles, which is a custom lawn range rifle um, built in Cody, Wyoming down in the United States. And it's just a fantastic product. Um, the rifle as well as the scope. So I've always been a 300 wind mag guy through and through. I've used that since I was, oh geez, 14 years old. And that's always been my go-to still have, I don't know, half a dozen of them in, in my gun cabinet. But this year I wanted to try something different and it's not because hunting isn't challenging. Um, it's incredibly challenging, but I wanted to make it harder and I wanted to, you know, I guess teach myself something new. And, I resorted to our muzzleloader. Best of the West is, you know, over the last 
24 months, has come out with a long range muzzle loader. And I think you guys are familiar with it. You were saying there that uh, one of your competitions, uh, one of the best of the West was actually in there. And I think it fared well. And you can touch on that here shortly. Yeah. Um, yeah but that was kind of what it was for me. Um, just something new. Uh, I, I always love to learn, love to grow, and I love to develop. So that was really, in a nutshell, what it boiled down to. And hey, let's be honest, there is a business side to it. Um, we don't have a lot of footage with our muzzle loaders and they're a fantastic product. So we need to get more. Um, you're going to see best of the West, that show, uh, use them a little bit more this year. And you're going to see my show, the rifleman use it a lot more this year. That's really exciting. I mean, we always jump at the, at the bit anytime we can, when somebody uses in a muzzle loader. I mean, whether it's a, you know, a modern muzzle loader or a traditional muzzle loader, they don't, they don't get a whole lot of press, <laughs> you know, especially right now. I mean, 300 Win Mag is, is the big one. And the Creedmoor, 6.5 Creedmoor is really big on all the precision competitions. So it's really exciting to see muzzleloading coming on to cable TV like it is with your show. Yeah, exactly. And that's the other angle of it, too. I mean, Jim Shockey used to be the guy, you know, yeah. uh, with Thompson Center. And he doesn't do it as much anymore. And, you know, this year he's probably not going to do any of it. And that's fine. I mean, each to their own. However, it's there's really, like you said, there's not a lot or really any muzzle-loading TV shows anymore. And that's not right. You know, there should be. So I'm a young guy, and we touched on younger people getting into hunting. And I like to think, here in Canada anyway, I mean, this is the first year that I've been in the United States, so we'll have to, you know, gauge that as we move forward. But I like to think that I've got a lot of younger people into hunting. So while I'm at it, why not try and get them into muzzleloading? Why not try and get them into long-range shooting, archery? I don't do archery personally, but like I said, if you're not learning new tricks, you're not growing. And I just think that, you know, younger people should really consider muzzleloading and, you know, the heritage of it, the history of it. And really, it grows your hunting opportunities. There are some seasons up here that are just muzzleloading. You know, it extends my season by two weeks. Mm-hmm. And with our best of the West muzzleloaders, you know, they get out there to five, six, seven hundred yards. I just, uh, I just shot a bear uh, a couple months, oh, about a month ago, I guess, uh, at 489 yards with a muzzleloader. Wow! I just shot a wild boar at 403 yards months ago with a muzzleloader. So it really, you know, it just boils down to practice. And like I said, familiarizing yourself with uh, with something new. So on the best of the West rifles, are those all 50s just to be kind of legal everywhere? Or do or you guys go down to the 45s? 45s. They're, okay. For the most part, they're 45s. We are uh, going to be launching a 50 um, very, very soon. But uh, for right now, it's it's 45s. Hmm. That's exciting. I mean, it's been an interesting year for it. I mean, going into last hunting season, you know, I... I saw a little bit of it, but especially coming out of the shot show and things. And then just online, as we go into this year's, you know, fall hunting season, there's been a lot more long range precision muzzleloading coming out. And I, I think it's just really exciting. I mean, CVA has got theirs. You guys have yours coming out. Last week we had um, Luke Horak on from Arrowhead Rifles. And, you know, w- with the competition that we have coming up this weekend, it's it's really neat to see guys getting those out and getting ready for hunting season by participating in some matches and things. I mean, it's not what they normally do. I mean, like you said there, you pick up a couple weeks of extra season when you pick up a muzzleloader. And that's that's why a lot of guys get into muzzleloading, I think, on the hunting side is they want a little extra time. And the modern muzzleloaders, it's not too difficult to get into. You don't have all the cleaning that you do with something traditional. And it's really opening up the sport. Agreed. No, I couldn't agree more. And hey, 
I can't get down to any of your matches this year, but like, tell me all about it. What do you guys got going on this weekend? I just let me live vicariously through you. Cause I would totally be there if I could. <laughs> well, thanks. It's something that we've kind of had going on in the background and it, it kind of came out to, you talked to Rod a little bit, um, from the NMLRA and yeah, want to do more of this match. And, and we got involved and started promoting it a little bit. And I went down to film the one that we did in May. And that one right. was a, a variety, of course, of fire. There was a silhouette round and the, we kind of split up the shooters into two rounds. So in the morning, you either shot paper, you shot silhouettes. In the afternoon, you switched, you know, and it, the paper went out to 200 yards. So the guys with kind of the baseline had something to do. You know, it's really hard for them to reach out really past three accurately, you know, with a $200 inline or so. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. But then we had a course of fire that on our silhouette line, I think went from three out to 500, which is our range goes out to 500 and, you know, a set of five silhouettes each relay with that. And it was neat. I mean, I, I joke around with people a lot that a lot of these guns are, I call them race guns and listeners have heard me say that before, but you know, it's, you're still, you're still depending on the loading from the muzzle and, you know, you're using powder pellets and either you're using a Sabo or, you know, just that straight bullet that those guys are working on now. And it's really neat just to see what they're able to do with that. I mean, you have the limitations of it being a muzzle loader, but walking up and down that line filming, I mean, you would hardly know the difference. And I, and you know, a lot of traditionalists might not necessarily agree with that, but it's neat to see those guys getting into it. And one of the people on the line, actually, he developed a, a flintlock bullet gun so he could compete, you know, and it was one of the fastest flintlocks I've ever seen. And and he really gave those guys a run for their money. I mean, I think right out into about 400 yards. And I think at five is where he started to have some trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. Most people were probably running into trouble at five. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for the one we're putting on this weekend here in July, uh, this will probably come out a little after, but so if you're listening to this, you can check out the video. I'll be down there filming. But um, we started reaching out to several of the manufacturers and things and and sparked up some interest with it. So we've got $3,000 in prizes to put out on the table now. So we can really start making it kind of a true competition and see what these guys are made of. Um, so we've... Oh, that's fantastic. We've shifted just kind of based on feedback. We've we've pulled out the paper for this round, and it, it could come in later. But for a lot of guys, the reactive targets, the silhouettes, are, are really what people want to be shooting, and we're happy to oblige that. As the side match, we've we've launched kind of this apex hunter course of fire, where we don't really know we're not releasing what it's going to be um, as far as the match is. But you don't get any siders, you don't get a spotter, and you just got to know your gun and your gear and gauge the distance as the best you would, just like you would out in the field. You know, if, if you're sitting out on the, in the mountains or something and an elk comes yes. out, you know, you just got to trust your gut and trust your gear to go do Reality. it. Reality. Yep. Yep. And, uh, so we're excited about that. There's a lot of guys around here getting ready for hunting season and, you know, people are starting to get their tags for some Western hunting. Um, so we're just kind of giving people a chance to get their gear out, have some fun and, and see what they can do. Um, we have a, a local guy a, around our range, Jeff Fisk. He makes the Be Still Creations custom rifles. And it was really neat last in May there at our last one, because I, I would hazard a guess that half a dozen or so people were shooting his guns that he had built. And it was really neat to see him on the line because, I mean, he was shooting... 
he was shooting, you know, in the competition against everybody, but in between shots or in between relays, he'd be helping those people with his guns that he had brought them, you know, and, and everybody was kind of joking that he was shooting against his own guns that day. And, uh, and he came out <laughs> on top, which so was really cool. neat, you know, just, he makes a few, uh, I think probably six or 10 a year in his shop, you know, and he's going up against guys who are shooting all the time and, and shooting the best stuff out there. So it's, it's fun seeing that camaraderie in muzzleloading. And I think, a lot of people think it's slow or it's boring, but I think, you know, when you kind of get into that, you can really, you get to know a lot of other people because of that slow rate of fire and kind of the process behind it that makes it really neat. And personable. Yeah. And not to pass over it, uh, Jason Day there was shooting one of the best of the West rifles with the Huskama optics. And it was, it was cool. <laughs> he was showing some guys there that, you know, usually sh shoot some small bench made custom stuff. And I think he had a few people talked into it. And I think, uh, if I wasn't coming home to my wife, I, I think I would have probably put one on order too. <laughs> seeing that double turret, man, that <laughs> no, is slick. Fair enough. fair enough. Yeah, they, uh, they are slick to say the least. Um, and anybody who's interested to learn more, I encourage you, you know, reach out to me or best of the West or Huskama themselves. No problem. But, uh, you know, Hey, I just want to digress. That is super cool. You know, the guy that, that built all these guns is out there and, and, you know, visiting and socializing and, and building relationships with all those other people that are shooting, shooting the gun. And you know what, to me, you know, I don't care if it's muzzle loading or rifle hunting or archery hunting. That's what it's all about. Yeah. Friends, family, and good times. And I really realized that this year, uh, you know, exactly what you're talking about having the guy that builds the guns out there with you. So John Porter, I mean, anybody who, you know, is familiar with, with sheep hunting or the best of the West or whatever knows John Porter. Um, I might be biased, but probably the best shot, you know, one of the best shots for sure in, in, in North America. And he builds the, you know, he's a big part of the best of the West company. Uh, one of the owners actually. Yeah. And a big part in building, you know, our, our systems and, and verifying our systems and making sure that they're where they need to be. And I, you know, I, I knew John before, not well, but uh, I knew him. And this year, you know, I had the, the privilege of having him up here in Canada, not once, but twice uh, on a bear hunt, on a whitetail hunt. And yeah, I got to say, like you said, when you're out there, you're shooting the gun that, you know, this guy essentially built and, you know, the Huskama scopes really, he designed our turret system. He designed it and you're out there hunting with, you know, with the person that has designed the system you're using that built the rifle that you're using. And it's super cool. And again, hunting, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Family, friends, and good times in the field. So what are some of the things that you must have when you're going on a hunt? I mean, you do a lot of hunting, both filming and, and non-filming. You know, what are some of the things that you look for, some of the things that you'd recommend people, especially young hunters, get interested in or start researching? I try not to really push too much. I always just say, get out there and try it yourself. Mm -hmm. There's only one way to learn. Um, you know, it's a blast. Go out there, do your thing, do it your way. Don't let anyone else tell you how to do it. Don't let anyone else tell you right. Don't let anyone else tell you wrong. Go, do it, and give it a try. You'll be glad you did, and you'll have a blast. Not to mention, anytime you're in the outdoors, you know, with, with Mother Nature and, and on planet Earth here, you're going to learn a lot about, well, Mother Nature. You're also going to learn a lot about yourself. So you really can't go wrong, and there's really no excuse to give it a try. And that's kind of always, you know, my advice. Everyone's got their style of hunting. Everyone's got how they want to do it or how you, they think you should do it. And honestly, for me, yeah, I'm on TV. Yeah. I'm a pretty good hunter. I, you know, really I'm just an average hunter that, that's very fortunate to do what I do. Um, but I think that's my biggest thing, you know, just getting people out there. And like you said, you touched on it, hit the nail on the head. Um, I love getting new hunters, young, old, whatever, and youth hunters 
into, into hunting and giving them opportunities that, you know, I was fortunate enough to have as a kid, you were fortunate enough to have as a kid, but not everyone's fortunate enough to be able to go and do it. Lots of people want to, they just can't. And for me, that's kind of what, you know, what I try to do as many people as I can, I'll take hunting every single time. And I think, you know, as television hosts, a lot of people kind of lose sight of that. Uh, we're not celebrities. Uh, we're not, uh, we're not big time Brad Pitts or anything like that. We're just everyday average hunters who put ourselves on TV or work with companies that put us on TV. And, you know, so I'm kind of rambling on here. Um, but in a nutshell, I just love getting people into hunting and taking them into hunting opportunities. But to answer your question, what gear do I need? Well, I don't really have any, I'm very superstitious. Like I said, I'm a hockey player. So I was a hockey player. So I'm very superstitious. So I got to wear the same hat. Like that's number one. I got to have my hat on and it's, you know, it's superstitious. If I don't have my hat on, I'm just not going to kill anything. And I think everybody's got their own little superstition. That's mine. Uh, but on a serious note, you know, I'm a rifle hunter, never been into archery. Um, I got ADD as bad as the next year. I, I can't sit still for 13, 14 hours in a blind. I, I just can't. I want to go. I want to walk. You know, I'll walk 30, 40, 50 clicks, no problem. Um, but I got to be moving. I got to be reading the sign. I got to be chasing the game or waiting for the game. Now, of course, a lot of hunting is patience. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's obvious. But uh, I really, really like to be on the move. Any chance that I get, I'm, I'm going to be walking, spot and stock over sitting in the blind over a date. Well, I think uh, you're still young too. I think a lot of people would <laughs> argue you can still keep up with that. <laughs> That's right. No, for sure. For sure. <laughs> when I'm 65, it might be a different story. Yeah. When you're going out and you're hunting, you know, say you say you're going out and you're filming for, for an episode. What does that, what does that process look like? You know, how much, yeah. how much planning goes in, how many people are going out with you? Walk us through that a little bit. It really depends on what you're hunting. Um, you know, here in Canada, if I'm by my hometown or around where I'm from, yeah, you know, we'll always go back at, uh, at night and everybody, you know, everybody's always got questions about the camera and the filming. So I'll dive more into, into that. It can be challenging. You know, if you go, like I said, that tar hunt, yeah, we had the luxury of going back anytime we wanted, uh, to the, to the resort or whatever, you know, lodge, I guess. But, uh, the one night we did, you know, we did say, Hey, we're going to rough it. We're going to stay up here. Like we're all the way at the top, the tar right over the ridge. We're just going to stay here, which is totally the right call. It, it came up aces for us the next day. But uh, from a camera perspective, you know, you got the camera guy looking at you there. And I guess in that case, it was, it was camera, camera girl. Um, she's like, uh, I only have two batteries. One's dead and this one's at like 30%. <laughs> so you got to kind of, you know, manage that. And it's hunting. It's unpredictable. Yeah. And honestly, uh, camera and, and that stuff, batteries especially, it's not even so much the camera like that you'll see on TV. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's all edited and it's all made look pretty. We actually, you know, we don't go out there and shoot something in 22 and a half minutes. I can tell you that <laughs> uh, we might make it look that way, but uh, I can promise it's a lot more than that. But the batteries and all the technicalities of it really uh, don't, they don't care, you know, what you're doing or if plans change. They just, batteries just die. Uh, stuff gets cold. Stuff gets dropped in the snow. It's reality. And mm-hmm. it honestly is different. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I would really, I wouldn't like hunting in the beginning, the cameraman, I'm just going to say this and, and I apologize if I can't, but the cameraman's a pain in the ass. <laughs> is what it is. Cause you're out there trying to hunt and get yeah. the job done. And you got this guy following you around. So in the beginning, you know, we used to take a camera guy and a sound guy and I've cut that back. I only take a camera guy and in post like post editing, we'll deal with the sound man. 
And if you look at a lot of hunting shows, uh, the sound's always the biggest complaint for viewers, and that's fair. But put on our cap for a bit. Do I really want to carry one or two more guys through a, a field stalking a, a whitetail buck, you know, when I could have two or I could have four just to have a little bit better sound quality? Probably not. You know, you guys would probably rather be actually tip that deer over, do the trophy hero shot, talk about the hunt, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which yeah. everyone's come to expect out of these hunting shows. So there's totally a different angle. Um, but like I said, I cut the, I cut the sound guy. I just bring one camera guy anywhere I go. doesn't matter if it's a, a hog hunt or a, a bull elk hunt. Um, one guy, that's all I take. Some guys take two, um, and good for them. You know, most of those hunts, and I mean, you guys see it a lot more in the States, uh, a lot more of those blind hunts, you know, sitting waiting for turkey, sitting waiting for whitetail. Yeah. You could probably throw three, four guys in the blind, but what I'm doing, you know, mountain hunts or, uh, prairie hunts where we're walking 30 clicks a day, yeah, spawn stock, mule deer, whitetail, elk, whatever it might be, it makes it a lot more challenging. So, yeah, I mean, it's just different. But you kind of grow to it. And like I said, I've been doing it now for, for going on five years. And uh, I love it. It's just a part of the adventure now. And like I said earlier, you know, I'm shooting the muzzleloader for a challenge. Mm-hmm. As if hunting's not hard enough to begin with. Well, I want to shoot the muzzleloader. Well, hey, I want to bring a camera guy with me. I want to film the adventure. It makes it more difficult. But when you can actually sit back and, and you know, look at look at it and, and not even watch the episodes, but, you know, watch the memories, you know, be it me or my sister or my cousin, my little cousin's first year, whatever it might be. You've got those on film forever. And yeah, it's more like I said, challenging, but it is incredibly rewarding. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, the technology, I think in a lot of respects there, the way you're talking about it, it's kind of like mother nature, you know, it doesn't care where you're at on the hunt, you know, it's going to dump some snow or it's going to dump some rain on you. And I think the cameras in a way are a little exactly. bit like that too. Yeah, 100%. Blessing and, and a the, curse. The elk and the deer don't care if you're out of shape or hungover. They're still going to run away. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I've got to remember that. I got There's some guys I can razz with that here this fall. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's awesome to take the cameras. And, and obviously, I guess we call it what it is. It is my job. But I do enjoy it. And like I said, it's just different. Um, just a different style of hunting. But hey, Mother Nature doesn't care. And reality doesn't care. So you gotta, you gotta plan. And there's, you know, you ask how much preparation goes into it. Honestly, like not as much as you would think. I'm not, I'm not in the business of bullshit. There's sometimes where we'll put a whole bunch of plans in place. And again, mother nature and reality just don't care and they don't work. And there's other times where we don't put any plans in place and it just, it turns out perfect. Mm-hmm. So we're somewhere in the middle. Like, you know, I like to, and if you watch my show, you'll see it's very real everybody can relate to it. You know, some people love it. Some people hate it and that's fair, but uh, it's very real. Um, everybody's like, okay, you know, I've, okay, wait till I'm, yeah, I've seen that. Or, oh, they got busted or, oh, you know, they made a great shot or everyone can relate to it. I don't try to make it something it's not. Um, and that's, you know, I think, you know, my second season there, I think I probably tried to script it a little too much. Uh, put a lot of that preparation work into it. And it just kind of, I mean, nobody else will probably notice it, but I noticed it and it seemed a little bit fake. So I got away from that in a good sense and, you know, go out there, let life happen and hopefully people enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, that's all you can do. That's right. Totally. So, I mean, with where, where are you at right now with the current season of filming? I mean, we're heading towards the fall. So are you, you know, we're halfway through the year. Are you halfway through the year or are you almost done and you're, you're looking for uh, looking towards next season now? So hunting shows are always kind of behind. So like we'll film in 2019 where we actually send Aaron in, uh, in 2020. 
Um, so I changed that up a little bit and I could be wrong. I just put it on Instagram post like an hour ago claiming that I was the first and I'm probably not. Somebody's probably going to tell me I'm wrong, but I think I'm the first host. We're the first show, you know, best of the West rifleman to actually air episodes only in Canada. We're not doing it in the United States yet, but we will next year. Uh, we're airing them within one month when we film them. Wow. So one of the biggest knocks, yeah. One of the biggest knocks for, for partners and, and sponsors was, okay, I need to cut you a check for XYZ at Shot Show in January of 2020, but I don't actually see any of that ROI until 2021 because your show doesn't air until 2021. Like, uh, we're in a world now with social media, everything's at your fingertips. Like, that's unacceptable. And it is. And you know what? We as, you know, a lot of the hunt teacher hosts are probably getting mad at me for saying this, but uh, we need to adapt. Uh, we need to get better, and we need to get stuff, you know, to, to air. Now, a live, you know, airing a hunt live, um, that's something we've looked at doing here in Canada. It probably wouldn't really be that. It probably wouldn't be viewed. I mean, you know, you might go 22 minutes and see nothing. Yeah. And some people would appreciate that. But for the most part, those people want to be captivated and, and, and entertained for, for that half an hour show. And I keep saying 22 and a half minutes because 30 minute show actually with commercials ends up being 22 and a half minutes of content. So continuing on here, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, how do I, how do I say, it, I guess. I kind of lost my train of thought. Okay, you, you can cut this out, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> oh, geez, okay. Where was I at? Sorry, I'm rambling on here. Uh, you were talking about, you know, airing just a couple weeks after you had right. it filmed. Yeah, okay, sorry. And... Jeez, jeez, I was, I was just checking out this speaker here because I realized it broke off the wall. And, oh, like, you're fine, you're yeah, fine. Probably, apologize. Um, so, yeah, we're we're actually airing episodes uh, within a month of when we film them this year. And, and we promised our sponsors three um, out, of the, out of the 13 that we do air each season has 13 episodes and yeah it's a, it's something that's different um no one else as far as i know and somebody please correct me on instagram at walsh 92 if i'm wrong but uh i just think you see the industry growing in in that capacity yeah i mean a lot of the a lot of black powder guys i mean because they're not on they're not on broadcast television you know guys are going out right. black powder hunting or muzzleloading muzzleloader hunting excuse me too uh, you know they're going out on the weekends and then they're publishing a video on youtube that week you know i mean it, and it's oh totally yeah it, social media like i said it's it's at your fingertips like yeah. people want it you know, you know or an instagram live or or whatever it might be so you know from a network television perspective like i said uh, you know, we filmed 2020 for the most part, like 99% of shows filmed 2020, what airs in 2021. And we're trying to change that game, but you know, I've kind of gone on a, on a, on a rant here, but to answer your question, um, I'm done four episodes right now. So I still have, you know, nine to go. Okay. So we're not even anywhere near half, um, which is fine. Yeah. That's uh, exciting. I enough, yeah. I was fortunate enough up here in Alberta, kind of how I usually do it is I'll do my, my local Canadian hunts through the fall. Um, as everyone would here in North America, white tail elk, moose, you name it. Um, and then we'll do our abroad hunts kind of in March or April. So usually at this time we're, you know, we're, we're about half done. Um, we are behind, but that's, you know, just due to COVID, but you know, I was very fortunate and, and, you know, the people that, uh, that I keep company with, we're very fortunate to uh, draw some really good tags up here in, in Alberta. Um, so we're going to be just fine on episodes. It's just going to be a really, really, really busy fall for us. Well, cool. Are you, are you heading down into the down South here to America any for your fall hunts or you're sticking up North? I would love to. I mean, I consider America like a second home. I kid you not. I would move there tomorrow if I could. <laughs> uh, no joke. I've always wanted to live in the States since I was like knee tall to a grasshopper. It is um, the best. But I just, 
Oh yeah, it is the best, best country on the planet. Many Canadians listening uh, will be pissed that I say that, but it is what it is. So yeah, I mean, I would love to come down there. Uh, I've hunted down there a handful of times, mostly in Montana, Wyoming. Uh, but this year, I, I just don't know if it's if it's going to work out, Ethan. I I really hope so, but I probably would say it won't. Yeah. No, I understand. I just, you know, that's, it's all up in the air. Like we talked about kind of at the beginning here, you know, there's been a lot of changes and we just got to roll with the punches. hundred percent, hundred percent. So yeah, I mean, that's probably, you know, that's probably a live look into every person, be it, be it an outfitter or a guy that had a sheep hunt booked up here in Canada or, you know, I guess a TV host in my, in my circumstance, um, probably how everyone's looking at it. Yeah. You know, it's just uh, day by day, and uh, we'll we'll see where the chips fall. I know I was supposed to go. Actually, I was going to run camera um, for a sheep hunt out in BC. Guy from uh, Minnesota was going to fly up. She was one of our best of the last last month, and I was going to go film that and, and maybe do a goat uh, goat myself. But uh, obviously, with with our lovely Canadian government, who I don't even want to talk about, um, closing the border for another uh, thirty days. He, uh, he's not able to come anymore. So it's, it's, it's just brutal. Yeah. A lot of changes. A lot of changes. Well, we're here at the kind of the 50 minute mark on my ticker here. And that's kind of when we, we start to close things out. So anything else that you want to touch on, if you want to talk more about the best of the West rifles or the, the, the Huskama optics there, um, I mean, you've got the, you've got the mic here for that. You know, I mean, I always ask people to share where people can find you online, your social media handles. I mean, obviously for you, you might um, kind of shout out where and, and how people can watch your show and, and catch up on episodes they may have missed. But, um, you know, we've got, you know, nine, 10 minutes here and I just kind of look at closing it out here and, and getting us both <clears throat> on our way. Sounds like a plan, my friend. Yeah. So I mean, the Huskmaw, I've been a, I've been a, you know, shooter of the Huskamaw scope system for, oh geez, over half my life. Actually, when I, you know, first started hunting, my family was just Huskamaw, Huskamaw, Huskamaw. And honestly, uh, that was just because of the simplicity of the system. There's lots of, you know, turret systems out there. There's lots of long range shooting systems out there. And you know what? They're all fantastic. I'm not going to take anything away from them, but I have to be biased. And I have to say that our Huskamaw system is one of, if not the best, you know, guys are going to have their opinion, but factually, I would say, you know what? Night Force is right there with us and everybody else is just a little bit behind. You want to say Night Force is as good or better? There's a conversation maybe to be had there. I'll argue, of course, but there's a conversation. <laughs> Anyone else? I don't even want to have the conversation. So we were always Huskamon just because of the simplicity of their system <clears throat> and, because of, and because our turrets are actually laser etched in yards instead of MOA. So as soon as I range, you know, let's say it's 700 yards, I just dial that seven. I don't have to do any calculations. I don't have to look at any sticker on the barrel or sorry, on the stock of my gun, nothing. 701, I dial that seven, I let drive, you know, it's it's done the, the compensation for me. It works every single time. As long as it's verified and, and the data on it is shot properly, which it needs to be, it'll work every single time. So my family really bought into that and we've had a lot of success uh, before I was on TV, before it was this or that. And it was always Huskamaw. So then when I first got the show, the first call I made was the Huskamaw and Jack Peterson, one of the owners, picks up the phone and for whatever reason, he was uh, he was silly enough to sponsor some young punk from Canada. <laughs> and uh, ever since then, now we're here five years and I, uh, I handle all of the, the Canadian importing of the, of the optics now. I handle all our Canadian business. 
um, through my distribution company up here in Canada. And yeah, it's just a fantastic relationship, but I mean, everybody's got their own opinion and that's awesome. And I think, yeah, you know, you gotta, you gotta shoot what you believe in. But, uh, for me, it was always Huskamaw and yeah, you know what? Now I do get paid to say that, but I've been using them a lot longer than I've been getting paid to say that. Yeah. Jason was telling us about that, about at the, uh, at the last shoot, because I don't know that many of our shooters have seen the best of the West or the Huskamaw optics. And Jason was saying something along the lines of, you know, if you change the configuration of your rifle or you change the load that you're using or, or something, I, I can't quite recall, but you can send in your turret and they will, they will calculate a new turret for you so that it's always matched up based on something to do with your rifle. Can you explain that a little bit more? Or is that often left yeah, field? Yeah, totally. Um, you know, I'll be like entirely, and I'm, you'll learn this about me. I'm the most honest and transparent guy out there. Um, I can't speak to it as much on the muzzle loading side of thing. I'm, I'm sure it's the same, but just more. I'm still familiarizing myself with with all that uh, stuff here as we as we navigate through through this season. But on the rifle side of things, yeah, I mean, if you want to go and shoot your data, so what we do is we'll take the gun. Let's say any gun. Let's just say you shoot uh, 300 wind mag and it's a Browning enabled. Okay, we'll take that gun, we'll put our Huskamaw scope on it, and we'll take it and we'll shoot it at 100 yards, 200 yards, 300 yards, 400 yards, all the way out to 1,100 yards. And we'll record all that data, you know, okay, at 700, you know, 500 yards, by 300 wind mag drops 39.3 inches with my Hornady LDX 200 grain bullets. And we record all that data. Basically, we send that off, you know, we, we, we verify what temperature it was shot at. We verify the elevation it was shot at. Uh, and we send that off, and then we burn the turret. Now, you'll see other companies, and, you know, I won't mention names, and, and, and they work. Don't get me wrong. Um, you know, apps or uh, other companies in the United States that just will take an average. So they'll look at 100, 300 wind mags that shot XYZ data. They'll average it out, and I could call them right now and say, hey, look, I shoot a 300 wind mag, and I want to turn it out to 800 yards, for Hornady LDX 200 grain ammo. They'll average those 100 guns, they'll burn the turret, and they'll ship me the turret in the mail. I'll have the turret in a week. Hmm. And you know what? Out to five, 600, that turret, probably accurate enough. I'm not going to lie. But you start going, you know, 556, 657, 8, 9, 1,000, that turret's not going to hold its own whatsoever. So we actually verify the data out to 1,200 yards. And Every single gun that we burn a turret for, somebody in our team has shot, verified, recorded. We burn the turret to that gun. No average, no, oh, we had Bo's gun last week and Joe's gun the week before. We'll just meet in the middle and that should be good. None of that. It's all to a T. And that's why it works so well. That's the only way it works so well. So what he's talking about is, for me, for example, my 300 wind mag, I shoot the horn of the LDX 200 grain bullet. If I want to switch and go to a 180 grain, my turret's not going to be, it's going to be fine. I mean, it's going to work, but to keep where we're at in the industry and keep our image and our success the way that it is, is the Huskamaw brand, we would have to reshoot that data, burn a new turret, and put it on our gun. Or on the flip side of that, not quite as complicated, if I want to go, you know, I'm a prairie boy, uh, where I hunt usually about 1,400, 1,500 feet elevation. And for the most part, that's pretty, you know, it's fine. You can go on a mountain hunt. Uh, like when I shot my tar, we were, you know, much higher than that. But uh, it didn't make a huge difference. But it makes a difference. So what guys will do, and we've actually come up with, we call it the double stack turret system. So you can go full revolution, 
360 degrees in your first turret out to eight, 900 yards by 300 to 800 yards. And then you can actually slide the turret up and go a full more revolution out to say 14 or 1500 yards. Or you could have that second turret when you slide your turret up be for a different elevation or be for a different temperature. Huh. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, it's just uh, really, it's, so what he's talking about is just how precise we are with our system. And that's why it's so effective and so accurate. And you know what, there's other people in the industry that are doing it just the same way, but they are far and few between. Fascinating. I'm, I'm kind of a tech nerd, so I, I love shooting tech. That just gets me going. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. So, you know, in closing here, we've, we've been talking here for about an hour. If somebody's looking to hear more from you or, or catch the show or, or follow you online, where's the best place to send them to get started with that? I always throw everyone to my Instagram. You know what? If you're, uh, if you're feeling generous enough to follow along, it's at Walsh 92 on Instagram. And my airtimes in the United States are Wednesday, 8.30 a.m. Eastern Standard, Friday, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard, and Saturday, our anchor slot is 9 p.m. Eastern Standard. And hey, I'm all about feedback. Somebody watches the show or hears this, uh, this podcast, loves it, hates it, tell me. At Walsh92 on Instagram, and I look forward to hearing from everyone. Ethan, thank you so much for having me on, my friend. It's been awesome working with you here through 2020 and I'm looking forward to many more conversations like this to come. Me too, Jordan. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. We're really excited about having Jordan on. It was great to meet him at the SHOT Show and it's great to see him continuing the tradition of muzzleloader hunting and sharing it with a new generation. The Muzzle Blast podcast is brought to you by the members of the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association. We couldn't do anything here at the NMLRA without the support of our members. I mean, something as simple as the podcast, even up to our wonderful traditional craft classes or our national shooting sports events, none of that is possible without the membership of the NMLRA. And if you're not a member, please check out NMLRA.org and consider joining. Even if you're unable to travel, especially during COVID-19 to several of our in-person matches and shoots and events, we also publish a monthly magazine, Muzzle Blast Magazine, and that goes along with the podcast the video, the online articles that we're bringing to you. It just delivers it to you in a nice, beautiful publication each month, just sent to your doorstep. So be sure to check that out. If you're, if you're not already a member, please consider joining. It starts at $35 a year and your support allows us to keep doing this, keep sharing muzzleloading, keep sharing history and traditional craft. Thank you. We touched on it a little bit here talking with Jordan, uh, but we're all itching to kind of get out there this fall. I know I'm looking to get out a little bit more than I normally would uh, for some whitetail season here. If you've been unable to pick up your supplies because of events and shows getting canceled, I know like even something as simple as the gun shows all across the country have just been shelved this year. So if you're looking to pick up some items, be sure to check out the link in the description to b below to nmlra.org slash shop small. That's going to give you a list of the NMLRA vendors and business members that are, in many cases, little mom and pop shops that have been supporting this sport and the hobby for decades. I've grown up knowing many of them, and really, they're just an extension of my own family. Anytime that I need something, I mean, at a shoot, I'm driving to a shoot, hey, you know, this broke, I need some of these, I can stop by their home or their shop on the way, pick it up and get right on my way. So please be sure to check out nmlra.org slash shop small for all your muzzleloading and living history supplies.